Chapter Three of the Crevice by William J. Burns and Isabel Ostrander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Henry Blaine takes a hand. A man stood upon the threshold, a man of medium height, with sandy hair and moustache, slightly tinged with grey. His face was alert and keenly intelligent, his eyes shrewd but kindly, the brows sloping downward toward the nose, with the peculiar look of concentration of one given to quick decisions and instant fearless action. His eyes travelled quickly from the young girl's face to Raymond Hamilton, as the latter advanced with outstretched hand. "'Mr. Blaine, it was fortunate that we found you at liberty, and able to assist us in a matter which is of vital importance to us both. This is Miss Anita Lawton, daughter of the late Pennington Lawton, who desires your aid on a most urgent matter. Miss Lawton!' Mr. Blaine bowed over her hand. When they were seated, she said shyly, "'I understand from Raymond, Mr. Hamilton, that you were at one time of great service to my father.' I trust that you will be able to help me now, for I feel that I am in the meshes of a conspiracy. You know that my father died suddenly, almost a week ago. Yes, of course. His death was a great loss to the whole country, Miss Lawton. Something occurred a few hours before his death, of which even the coroner is unaware, Mr. Blaine. I told Mr. Hamilton what I knew, but he advised me to say nothing of it, unless further developments ensued. And have they ensued? the detective asked quietly. Yes. Anita then detailed to Mr. Blaine the incident of her father's nocturnal visitor. As she told him the conversation she had overheard, it seemed to her that the eyes of the detective narrowed slightly, but no other change of expression betrayed the fact that the incident might have held a significance in his mind. The voice was entirely strange to you? he asked. Yes, I had never heard it before, but it made such an impression upon me that I think I would recognize it instantly whenever or wherever I might happen to hear it. "'You caught no glimpse of the man through the half-open door?' "'No, I was not far enough downstairs to see into the room.' "'And after you fled, after hearing your father groan, you returned immediately to your room?' "'Yes. I closed my door and buried my face deeply in the pillows on my bed. I did not want to hear or know any more. I was frightened. I did not know what to think. After a time I must have drifted off into an uneasy sort of sleep.' for I knew nothing more until my maid came to tell me that Wilkes the butler wished to speak to me. My father had been found dead in his chair. No one in the household seemed to know of my father's late visitor, for they made no mention of his coming. I would have told no one except Raymond, but for the fact that this afternoon my minister informed me that my father, instead of being the multimillionaire we had all supposed him, had in reality died a bankrupt." The detective received this information with inscrutable calm. Only by a thoughtful pursing of his lips did he give indication that the news had any visible effect upon him. Anita continued, giving him all the details of the minister's visit, and the magnanimous promise of her father's three associates to stand in loco parentis toward her. It was only when she told of summoning her lover, and the accident which befell him on his way to her, that that peculiar gleam returned again to the eyes of Mr. Blaine, and they glanced narrowly at the young man opposite him. "'As I told Raymond, I cannot help but feel that it is not true. My father could not have become a pauper, much less could he, the soul of honour, have been guilty of anything derogatory to his good name. Until a few days prior to his death he had been in his usual excellent spirits, and surely, had there been any financial difficulties in his path, he would have retrenched, in some measure, he made no effort to do so, however, 
and in the last few weeks has given even more generously than usual to the various philanthropic projects in which he was so interested. Does that look as if he was on the verge of bankruptcy? He bought me a string of pearls on my birthday two months ago, which for their size are considered by experts to be the most perfectly matched in America. A fortnight ago he presented me with a new car. Only three days before his death he spoke of an ancient chateau in France which he desired to purchase. Oh, the whole affair is utterly inexplicable to me. We will take the matter up at once, Miss Lawton. The main thing that I must impress upon you for the present is to acquiesce with the utmost docility and unsuspicion in every proposition made to you by the three men, Carlos, Marlowe, and Rockamore. In other words, place yourself absolutely in their hands, but keep me informed of every move they make. You understand that the most important factor in this case is to keep them absolutely unsuspecting of your distrust, or that you have called me to your assistance. I must not be seen coming here, or to Mr. Hamilton's office, nor must you come to mine. I will have a private wire installed for you tomorrow morning, by means of which you can communicate with me, or one of my operatives, at any hour of the day or night, in the presence of any one. This telephone will connect only with my office, but the number will be, supposedly, that of your dressmaker, and if you require aid, advice, or the presence of one of my operatives, you have merely to call up the number and say, Is my gown ready? If it is, please send it around immediately. Let me know through this medium whatever occurs, and take absolutely no one into your confidence. I understand, Mr. Blaine, and I will try to follow your instructions to the letter. Oh, by the way, there is something I wish to tell you, which no one, not even Mr. Hamilton, knows, much less my father's friend or my minister. Four years ago my father financed a philanthropic venture of mine, the Anita Lawton Club for Working Girls. It is not purely a charitable institution, but a home club, where worthy young women could live by paying a nominal sum, merely to preserve their self-respect, and be aided in obtaining positions. Stenographers, telephone and telegraph operators, clerks, all find homes there. No one knew, however, that under my management the club grew in less than a year, not only to have paid for itself, but to have yielded a small income, over and above expenses. I did not tell my father. I don't know why. Perhaps it was because I inherited a little of his business acumen, and I manipulated the net income in various minor undertakings, even in time buying small plots of unimproved real estate, meaning after a year or two more to surprise my father with the result of my venture. But his death intervened before I could tell him about it. "'Your father's associates, then, believe you to be without funds or private income of your own?' the detective asked. "'Yes, Mr. Blaine, and whatever money is necessary for the investigation will, of course, be forthcoming from this source.' "'Let me strongly advise you to make no mention of it to anyone else. Let these men believe you to be utterly within their power financially. And now, Miss Lawton, I will leave you, for I have work to do.' The detective rose. "'The private wire will be installed tomorrow morning.' Remember to be absolutely unsuspicious, to appear deeply grateful for the kindness offered you. Receive these men and your spiritual adviser whenever they call. And above all, keep me informed of everything that occurs, no matter how insignificant or irrelevant it may seem to you to be. Keep me advised on even the smallest details, anything, everything concerning you and them. Thus it was that when two days later President Mallow of the Street Railways called upon his new ward, she received him with downcast eyes and a charmingly deferential manner. His long-nosed, heavy-jowled face, with the bristling gray side-whiskers, 
flushed darkly when she placed her trembling little hand in his, and shyly voiced her gratitude for his great kindness to her. "'My dear young lady, this has been a most sad and unfortunate affair, but I have come to assure you again of the sentiments of myself and my associates toward you. We come, your self-appointed guardians. We will see that no financial worriments shall come to you. Remember, my dear, that I have three married daughters of my own, and I could not permit the child of my old friend to want for anything. You may remain on here in this house, which has been your home, indefinitely, and it will be maintained for you in the manner to which you have always been accustomed. Remain here in my home? Anita stammered. Why, it, it is my home, isn't it? You must consider it as such. I do not like to tell you this, but it is necessary that you should know. I hold a mortgage of eighty thousand dollars on the house, but I have never recorded it, because of my friendship and close affiliation with your father. I shall not have it recorded now, of course, but there is a slight condition, purely a matter of business, which in view of the fact that through your coming marriage you will have a home of your own, Mr. Rockamore, Mr. Carlos, and myself feel that we should agree upon. Your father has a shadowy interest in some old bonds, which have for years remained unremunerative. Should they prove of ultimate value, we feel that they should be transferred to us as our reimbursement for the present large sum which we shall lay out for you. Of course, Mr. Mallow, that would only be just. I am glad that I may perhaps have an opportunity to repay some of the kindness which in your great-hearted charity you are now bestowing upon me. I will see that my father's attorneys attend to the matter as soon as possible. It may be some little time before the estate is settled, as, of course, it must be horribly complicated and involved, but I will bring this to their immediate attention. You are a very brave young woman, Miss Lawton, and I am glad that you are taking such a clear-sighted view of this double catastrophe which has come upon you. Ah, I had almost forgotten. Here is a duplicate of the mortgage which I hold upon this house, which your father made out to me some months ago. Anita scarcely glanced at it, but laid it quietly by upon the table, as though it were of small interest to her. Mr. Mallow, although I understand that Mr. Rockamore, being a promoter, was more closely associated with my father in various projects than you, I believe that he always considered you his best friend. Can you tell me what it was which brought my father's affairs to such a pass as this? Dear young lady, do not ask me. It is a painful subject to discuss, and as you are a mere child, you cannot be supposed to understand the financial maneuvers of a man of your father's passion for gigantic operations. Years of success had possibly made him overconfident, and then, you know, we are none of us infallible. We are liable to make mistakes at one time or another. Your father interested himself daringly in many schemes, which we more conservative ones would have hesitated to enter. Indeed, we not only hesitated, but repeatedly declined when your father placed the propositions before us. As you know, unfortunately, he was a man who would have resented any attempt at advice. And although for a long time we have seen his approaching financial downfall, and have helped him in every way we could to avert it, he would not relinquish his plans while there was yet time. Do not ask me to go into any further details. It is really most distressing. Your father's attorneys will understand the matter fully when the estate is finally settled. I cannot understand it, Anita murmured. I thought my father's judgment almost infallible. However, Mr. Mallow, I cannot express my gratitude to you and my father's other associates for your great kindness toward me. Believe me, I am deeply affected by it. I shall never forget what you have done. Do not speak of it, dear Miss Lawton. I only wish for your sake that your poor father had heeded poorer heads than his. But it is too late to speak of that now. 
We will do all in our power to aid you, rest assured of that. Should you require anything, you have only to call upon Mr. Rockermore, Mr. Carlos, or myself. When he had bowed himself out, Anita flew to the table, seized the duplicate of the mortgage which he had given her, and slipped it between the pages of a book lying there. Then she went directly to her dressing-room, where on a little stand near her bed reposed a telephone instrument, which had not been there three days previously. "'Grossvener 0760,' she demanded, and when a voice replied to her at the other end of the wire, she asked querulously, "'Is not my new gown ready yet? If it is, will you kindly send it over at once? I have also found your last quarterly bill, and I think there is something wrong with it. I will send it back by the messenger who brings my gown. Thank you. Good-bye.' She took an envelope from the desk, and, returning to the drawing-room, slipped the duplicate mortgage within it, and sealed it carefully. When, a few minutes later, a tall, dark, stolid-faced young man appeared, with a large dressmaker's box, she placed the envelope in his hand. "'For Mr. Blaine,' she whispered. "'See that it reaches him immediately.' A half-hour afterward, Raymond Hamilton went to the telephone in his office, and heard the detective's voice over the wire. "'Mr. Hamilton, have you among the letters and documents at your office the signature of the person we were discussing the other day?' "'Why, yes, I think so. I will look and see. If I have, do you wish me to send it around to you?' "'No, thank you. A messenger boy will call for it in a few minutes.' Wondering, Raymond Hamilton shuffled hastily through the paper in the pigeonholes of his desk until he came to a letter from Pennington Lawton. He carefully tore off the signature, and when the messenger boy appeared, gave it to him. He would not have been so puzzled, had he seen the great Henry Blaine, when a few minutes had elapsed, seated before the desk in his office, comparing the signature of the torn slip which he had sent with that affixed to the duplicate mortgage. A long, close, breathless scrutiny, with the most powerful magnifying glasses, and the detective jumped to his feet. "'That is no signature of Pennington Lawton,' he exulted to himself. "'I thought I knew that fine hand, perfectly as the forgery has been done.' That's the work of James Brunell, by the Lord. End of chapter 3